You're listening to Branch Out by Sycamore. I'm, now, this is my last chance to do what I really wanted to do when I started. So I opened up a, a practice, a, a clinic for children of low-income families. They're called low-income children, but all children are low-income, unless they're movie stars. Children, children of low-income families are just unlucky children. They just got born into a family that of low income. Uh, so I did that for uh, a few months. Then I saw nobody's coming. I'm Larson Hicks, CEO of Sycamore, and welcome to Branch Out, where I chat with healthcare professionals about broad-reaching topics like their careers in medicine, hobbies and pursuits outside the hospital, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to Branch Out with Sycamore. This is Larson Hicks. I'm the CEO of Sycamore Independent Physicians, and I'm joined today by Dr. Gilbert Simon. Um, Dr. Simon is a primary care physician um, for for more than 40 years, um, had his own uh, award-winning uh, network of clinics that served low-income patients, um, and he is on mission now um, to to talk about the American healthcare system and, uh, and and chart a new path and and stimulate conversation and and uh, action towards something different and uh, for that I I applaud him I'm so thankful to have you here on the show today thanks for joining us okay thank you that's exactly why I'm here to to promote my ideas and to, and to stimulate conversation and discussion and argument fantastic. Well, just just as a way of before we dive into your uh, background and, and everything, I'd like to just real quick frame this up, uh, and even for you, Doctor Simon, just to give you some some of a, a um, some background on this podcast. Uh, Sycamore um, is a uh, a group that's committed to physician autonomy. We're we're trying to. Uh, Trying to help unplug doctors from the matrix, uh, one one doctor at a time is kind of how we think about it. Um, we are essentially uh, locum tenens, although we felt like uh, the locum tenens problem in, in that industry is lack of transparency and and high cost. And so we built this this flat rate, um, transparent pricing uh, locums business that's really built for physicians who want to go independent. And um, and we view it as a partnership. Uh, Rather than kind of your traditional middleman who's trying to maximize their profit off of each doctor, um, and so it's been a really we, we've been in business since uh, really since 2016. Um, I've been at the helm as CEO since 2018, and we started this podcast because because there's a lot of physicians who who um, a I think need to need to be encouraged, you know, to to think outside the box to consider their role in this healthcare system and, and their, um, and, and how they're voting with their feet, so to speak, with, with, uh, where they're practicing and how they're practicing and, and, and the, the opportunity that they have perhaps to, um, to make an impact, um, by, by, uh, by regaining kind of their own independence and autonomy as physicians. I think, um, we, we, we think that a world where more physicians have more autonomy in healthcare, that it's going to be a better, uh, a, a better healthcare system, um, and so we're uh, we did this podcast. We call it Branch Out. Obviously, our name is Sycamore, um, but we call it Branch Out because we're trying to inspire physicians to think about um, doing something different with their careers. Maybe 
Uh, we've, we've had folks who um, have become kind of financially uh, more diversified uh, by uh, doing things like real estate or doing things like starting businesses, bio, you know, biotech businesses or, or device businesses or um, any, any range of things. We had a, we had someone on who uh, started a daycare. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, we're, we're, uh, we're always looking for folks that uh, would help us on this mission and help us to inspire physicians to, uh, to, to be willing to think about branching out. And so, um, so anyway, that's just kind of, uh, just kind of setting the stage for, uh, for why we've, why we do this podcast and why we're excited to have you on. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So I tell you about my branching out. Do you want to hear about my, how I branched out? Yes, absolutely. Please. And so, and, and maybe if you're up for it, I mean, I'd love to kind of go all the way back if you don't mind. I mean, I'd love to go back to, why did you get into medicine in the first place? When did you know you were going to be a physician? Uh, from the time I was born, I think I knew I would be a physician. It, it was uh, wow. I'm a congenital physician. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> uh, my, my family always referred to me as uh, as Gilbert the doctor. Wow. And uh, uh, I went back to my, el- my elementary school yearbook and and where it says, "What are you going to want to be? Physician." It was always physician. Wow. Uh, I never deviated once. Which when made you know, it somewhat you know. easy. Well, I'm, a, I'm really a one-trick pony. I've only learned to be a physician. That's all I can do. I'm nothing more than a physician. That's great. So, so do you view it? I mean, I, this is one of those questions I'm, I think is always interesting to hear physicians talk about. Do you, do you do you view it as a calling as much as you view it as an occupation? It's a calling entirely. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it's not an occupation. Doctors. For, of my generation, never wanted to retire and give it up. Mm-hmm. Um, you retire from jobs, but not from yeah. callings. You, you stop your calling when you could no longer do it. Yeah. Uh, and, but it was it always been a calling. It, yeah. the, the relationship between doctors and patients was always a separate, special relationship, like like none other. Yeah. And uh, uh, it, it has been a calling. I love my my career. I love my profession. That's awesome. Well, I, I think um, you know the, the, I think the answers I get to that question are more varied than I'd expect, but I, but I think there are more out there like you than than uh, than than the other. I think most physicians get into this because they they feel called to it, and um, and, and and it is a I do believe it is a calling. Um, so so you you knew from a young age, and then how, how did you how did you choose um, to, to go the route that you went? Uh, I chose pediatrics as, okay. as my specialty uh, because it gave me the chance to, to engage both male and female, young and old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a special bonus, it gave me the chance to deal with the whole family uh, because when a child is sick, the whole family is, is sick. And, and uh, when the right. mother brings the child into the office, I had to deal with the child's illness and the mother's anxiety and, and or guilt. So it gave me a chance to really spread out all my whatever talents I had to as wide an audience as I could possibly find. So that's why I chose pediatrics. That's great. That's great. I, I um, you know, pediatrics is one of those. Uh, you know, you talk about a calling. I feel like uh, of the specialties, pediatrics is definitely, uh, I think, at the top of the list of of those uh, specialties that that the people you meet in pediatrics really feel called to the work are really doing it because it, it's, it's part of their DNA. It's part of their mission in life. Um, 
what what is it about when you think about how to define the calling or the the mission of a physician how how do you think about that what is what is the calling what is the mission uh, the mission is to in, in, involve yourself uh, in the lives and in the health and well being of children as they fit into their families. Mm. Uh, it's it's not just the child; it's it's the entire family, uh, with the child being the focal point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the calling is the uh, uh, to be given given being the receipt of of the honor mm-hmm. of their of their respect and their trust. And then the calling is not to betray that honor, not to betray not to be that what? trust, not to betray it. Hmm. Be truthful to yeah. it. That's good. Wow. If if uh, if more physicians had that as their mission statement, um, I, I think we'd be in a in a different um, situation than we are now. I think um, somehow um, powers that be uh, in in healthcare have have turned what what I think is a calling as a high calling into a job. And, uh, and I think a lot of physicians feel like, um, they're just supposed to do what they're told, you know, and, um, and, and have kind of lost that sense of ownership, uh, in healthcare. And I think, um, I think, uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of physicians have kind of ceded a lot of ground, um, to, to the government and to, um, to, um, corporations and, and, uh, and of course those, those entities are going to do what those entities do, um, and, and it's not, they're not people who are called to, you know, the CEO of the hospital system is not a, didn't take the Hippocratic oath, right? Um, no, no. Most likely you took some other oath, some accounting oath or some other kind of oath. <laughs> not, a, not a Hippocratic oath. Well, he's got a, he or she has a fiduciary obligation to their shareholders. So they, they right. do have this kind of moral um, imperative to produce a return on investment. Right, and, and that's exactly what Morton Strickley, the, uh, the the boy the boy who took uh, his Daraprin drug from eighteen dollars to to uh, seven hundred dollars, he said mm. the same thing. I have a yeah. moral imperative to make yeah. the most most money I can for my for my stockholders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, and that has been the, uh, the issue. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. Um so, so, okay. So before we jump into the juicy stuff, cause, cause I think you and I have a lot of, of, uh, heated conversation to have here on some great topics. I want to, I want to round out kind of your story. So you went into pediatrics and then, and then kind of where did you go from there? Cause I know you, you, you spent some time in academia and, and, uh, and you've done some several different things. Once I got my, my license to practice, uh, medicine and my, Pediatric, all my diplomas. I then undertook to practice in New York at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. Okay, uh, and that was a, a very upscale practice. I had patients coming from far and wide, and I, I mean from all over the world. And it was a it was a very stimulating, very exciting practice. And I grew it from from a single person practice to a five person practice. Wow. Uh, and then it it peaked. And then I decided that's it. I've, I've gone as far as I can go with this, and it wasn't my initial, initial intent. That wasn't the group I wanted to take care of when I first began my my, uh, my practice. It wasn't how I saw myself as a ten, twelve, thirteen-year-old boy becoming wanting to become a doctor. That wasn't what I wanted to become. I wanted to become a different kind of doctor. So I left 
New York went to went to California and began all over again as a as a, a new person, a new new pediatrician. And the practice there was was very different uh, because the practice in California was really regulated and controlled by a handful of HMOs, and not terribly satisfying. Mm. So I I then joined the full time faculty at UC Davis as a as, I think associate professor of pediatrics. Uh, but I'm not a committee person. I hate sitting in committees. I, I, I hate being part of that p- political structure. And after a few years, I just couldn't stand it. And I said, no. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I walked, I walked away from my tenured position. I walked away from my, my uh, retirement plan. I said, I'm now this is my last chance to do what I really wanted to do when I started. So mm-hmm. I opened up a practice, a, a clinic for children of low-income families. Hmm. They're called low-income children, but all children are low-income, unless they're movie dolls. <laughs> children, children of low-income families are just unlucky children. Yeah, They sure. just got born into a family that of low income. Sure. Uh, so I did that for uh, a few months. Then I saw nobody's coming. They're not coming to see me. And when I looked into it and, and I asked around, they said, well, they have no transportation. They can't get to you. Hmm. They have no income. They have no transportation. So I decided to go to them. <clears throat> I converted my family recreational vehicle into a clinic, took out all the gut, the guts of it, and put in some exam tables and some, lab, some <laughs> laboratory equipment. And I went, went around like a good humor truck. And uh, I did my examinations and treated my sick children from the van. Wow. That grew and grew and grew. Uh, there, was, there was no limit to the demand for that. Hmm. And I, I could only satisfy it by opening up clinics. I opened up one clinic in the south area, and then another one in the north area, then the east area, then the west area. Then I began filling in areas. Before long, I had 10 clinics. Wow. Uh, and, and nobody really wanted to... to uh, to, to see my my patients, hmm. my patients were lo- low income. They were difficult, difficult patients, hard hard to uh, relate to unless you understood who what their challenges were. Yeah. And uh, uh, I came from a low income family, and I know, I know what low income is all about. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it was never as low income as as my patients had, but they hmm. they were desperate people trying to do their best, and I was desperate doctors trying to do my best my best to take care of them. Yeah. And, the, and it went on. Nobody said it would last very long because the compensation was so t- so terribly low. Yeah. And, the, and there was no chance that I could possibly uh, succeed in this. Uh, and I did succeed in this for 26 years, wow. not by raising my rates because the rates were fixed, but by reducing my costs. Hmm. And that's what, that's what got me interested in cost reduction. Hmm. You can reduce cost. And reduce and reduce and reduce and not sacrifice any of the quality of the care you're giving. Yeah. So that's that's why I got in, got really a mindset to. Uh, we had forty thousand active patients. Wow. Uh, wow. And and uh, when I looked at all the charts that we had, we had really uh, engaged in the lives of fifty thousand more than that. So close to, close to uh, half the population of Sacramento had had crossed my my, my transoms. It was a wow. what a so so what happened to that practice? Uh, I sold it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and not be, not because I chose to, chose to sell it. Yeah. Uh, it was yeah. sold because of a, in a divorce situation. Mm-hmm. My, my divorcing wife felt that she owned half of the practice, mm-hmm. which she did, and she wanted her half in cash. Yeah, fair enough. Well, that's so, that's a that's a, a sad end to uh, to a really neat, um, really really cool and meaningful, impactful um, business and 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 venture there. Um, kind of jumping a little bit further into uh, into some of the the kind of meat of the conversation. Uh, I, as I was, I haven't had a chance yet to read your book uh, completely, but it it looks it's it looks tremendous. It's called a uh, ripped off. Uh, the subtitles overtested, overtreated, and overcharged the health, the American healthcare mess. Um, and, and this, this section here, um, stood out to me and I'd love to hear you talk a little further about it. Um, and this, this, I think is, um, this is a good segue from what you were just talking about. So I'm just going to read a little section. It says, I saw primary care doctors foregoing their learned skills and functioning more as referral agents. I'll skip down a little further. Specialists had become procedurists. Some of the procedures were life-saving, but others were to be of no value at the time they were being done, were known to be of no value at the time they were done. Despite the best evidence, they persisted in doing their lucrative procedures. Get-rich-quick scammers took advantage of our defenseless honor system. Purveyors of medical supplies hawked their devices and equipment with the promise that they would be, quote, free. Doctors bought testing equipment because they added revenue, not value. I'll stop there. You go on, but I'll stop there. Um, that's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty grim. Uh, a pretty grim view, you know, of, of, of medicine. I know, grim but true. Unfortunately, yeah. What well, I didn't want to hold back anything. I wanted yeah. people to get angry uh, and, and say, "Well, if that's the case, what are we doing? Why are we just standing around doing nothing about this?" Yeah. Can you? I, I, I've heard some pretty crazy stories, but but I'd love to hear. You know, just you know, the 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 get rich quick scammers. You know, I, I feel like I go to conferences and everyone in the exhibit hall are, are you know every every vendor in the exhibit hall is some new company that's figured out a way to bill for a, in a creative way for a new code that Medicare's put out, or it's or it's some you know medical device. Um, Group that that um, you know that, that's offering you know some some uh, some new 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 product or test that's that's you know inc- incredibly expensive, but you know again the 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 view as they're as they're marketing it to these doctors is well you don't have to pay for it it's and it's you know it's, it's essentially free insurance covers it um, so what have you seen I'm sure in in, in your years of practice you've seen a lot of these these kinds of folks um, hovering around the the healthcare industry. Well, they they didn't often come to my in my direction. Yeah, because they they knew that my 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 patients were low income and poor, and yeah. we we couldn't afford frills. Yeah, uh, we, we were just meat and potatoes. Uh, but but my colleagues were were fully engaged in this. I had the. People who bought into into CAT scan machines and, yeah. and uh, were part owners and would uh, refer their headaches to the to their CAT scan machine operator. Mm-hmm. Uh, they made, made a ton of money doing that. Yeah. Uh, there are there are ways of getting rich if if that's the if that's the objective. Yeah. Uh, my objective was to uh, get get by and get the patients healthy. Yeah. 
Yeah, I um, I had the um, misfortune about a year ago or two years ago at this point of taking my daughter uh, to the ER because she had um, she'd had fevers, you know, for that that had lasted for several days, and so we finally said, let's take her in and. And, you know, what it ended up being was a fairly common, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the you know, uh, bladder, you know, reflux or urinary tract, you know, infections that, that, uh, that, um, that it sounds, you know, from, from talking to more doctors about it and, and looking into it, it sounds like a fairly common thing for little girls and something that, that, that frequently will resolve itself over time. Um, and, and I'm, and my hunch was that the physician knew that pretty much right out of the gates. Like, like his suspicion was that that's what it was. Um, but they didn't let us out of there until they had done, uh, IV, uh, antibiotics, which I appreciate, but, uh, they had done, uh, sent off some blood for testing. They had done uh, ultrasound. I think we did an MRI. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of all the different things that were done, <laughs> all the different poking and prodding and, and I certainly yeah. remember the bill uh, when I got home. Yeah. Um, and, you know, every time and, – and I feel like I'm one of these informed consumers. And every time the doctor said, well, I think we need to do this, m- my question would be, do, do you really think it's necessary? And the response was always, well, we just got to be safe. We just – we'd rather be safe. Um, and what I've, we work, our, our, our company works primarily with emergency physicians. And so I hear these stories from emergency physicians all the time. And this is why ER doctors are quitting in droves right now and are just completely burned out with healthcare. Is that, that ER doctor that I saw, if he hadn't run all those tests uh, and ordered all those things, um, and, and when his manager came in the next day and saw that, somebody with the, this chief complaint, you know, uh, didn't have all those tests run, uh, there would be a, a difficult conversation um, about not ordering the right tests and, and not maximizing the revenue on that patient. Um, and so it does seem like certainly the healthcare systems um, and, and the, the kind of administration of these hospitals have really are really oriented towards maximizing revenue, uh, per patient. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's not necessarily through keeping their patients healthy. Um, you know, getting doc, you know, patients home as quickly as possible, et cetera. It's, it's really, it's really about what, how many times can we swipe that insurance card? Well, unfortunately the emergency room is really the, the, uh, ground zero for this happening. Uh, Patients go there, uh, they're usually because they're, t- they're very scared of, of the illness. Uh, the emergency room doctor uh, typically has never seen the patient ever before, knows nothing about the patient except what, they, what's, right. what they're being told, which usually is not, not very much. Right. Uh, and the ER doctor tends to think that, the, that he's got to do, do it all. Because once the child leaves or patient leaves the emergency room, they're going into a black hole and nothing, nothing more will be done. Right. And that, that kind of mindset is, creates tremendous cost. Yeah. Well, there's the a doctor, doctor, too, right? That's, that's what's, that's commonly said. I'm not sure how true that is. Uh, because even in areas where, where litigation rates are very low, the same overutilization occurs. Mm-hmm. 
So it, it's the fear of being wrong. Yeah. It's the fear. It's the fear. Fear that somebody will criticize you for not doing that test. Right. It's the same fear we had when we were in training. We would walk around the hospital floors, and there'd be some attending physician asking you questions. Did you do this? Did you think of this? Did you think of this? And that that stays with you the rest of your life. Yeah. And I think that yeah. I think that these ER doctors are just afraid of being criticized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And then, you know, I had one patient that's mentioned in my book. Uh, I, I personally took care of it, the child with a, a, an intestinal virus with vomiting and diarrhea. And the mother wanted more. She wanted more more than just that. Mm-hmm. And I told her, Sir, that's all there is. You, told, you got child as a virus. That's all there is. Mm-hmm. And there is no treatment. Just give your child some fluids. It'll go away. Mm-hmm. She ran to the emergency room. And, and, and while she was there, the child had uh, uh, an MRI of the abdomen, and, uh, one of the pelvis, uh, had, was given IV antibiotics, every test known to man, and then left with a diagnosis of intestinal virus. So there was no need for any of that. Well, and, and you make a good point that, um, you know, the, the ER is kind of the, um, you know, unfortunately, it's it is the kind of social safety net sort of you know um, place for people who are uninsured. You know, they and 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 they tend to treat it like primary care. Although, again, as you mentioned, the, the orientation of an ER doctor is is very different uh, than a primary care doctor's orientation potentially. Um, and so uh, and so, yeah, you've got a lot of a lot of people coming through the ER. Who really probably shouldn't be there, um, but because they're uninsured or because, um, you know, for for any number of reasons, they're they're not they're not going there, um, and so they end up o- overutilizing this this ER department, and uh, and those ERs are expensive. Um, that's it's kind of the nature of the beast. Uh, you got these expensive doctors, these expensive facilities, and you gotta you gotta maximize the 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 revenue. Yeah, uh, it's a huge, huge money drain from the system, uh, and those patients would are better off being treated by the primary care doctor who has a different orientation. Our orientation is that uh, we'll we'll do what we can for the patient on the first go around, but there'll be a second go around. If if we if we didn't get it right the first time, we'll get it right the second time or the third time. For the ER doctor, there is no second go around. It's now or never. So let's let's do everything possible. Yeah. That's true. My so so coming back to primary care. I mean, my my I I confess I I haven't been to a primary care physician in a in in a while now, and 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 I'll, I can tell you the reason. Um, there's two reasons. One is every experience I had at the primary care physician over the last you know several years has has been has felt like I was slapped on a conveyor belt. I actually felt like it was more like, I, I think about those meat, pro, like those images of meat processing plants where you have a, a piece of beef hanging from a hook and it's running through a factory. I kind of feel like that. I feel like I go into the, the waiting room and they hook me onto the, the meat hook and they sling me through there and I get stuck and poked and squeezed and, and you know, and 10 minutes later I'm at the, I'm checking out, you know, and making my next appointment. And uh, right. and so that was one of the reasons I stopped going is I just felt like 
She felt like a piece of meat. <laughs> I didn't feel like right. a human being. Yes. <laughs> The assembly line of, of a primary care, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's a requirement to see as many patients as you can in the shortest yeah. period of time you have. It's all, all part of the, uh, the, the corporate takeover of, of medicine. Right. Well, and, and I think everybody in the system, you know, from corporations even to, to the government, they sort of recognize, you know, are, are sort of pushing, well, we know how productive or how, how much uh, – volume a, a single physician can see. And so we're just going to keep adjusting reimbursement or payment, you know, uh, the, the insurers or the, the payers until, you know, until we get that productivity up. Um, and so it, it, it feels like those doctors are kind of on a treadmill. Um, they're, they're, you know, what, what they used to be reimbursed X for, they're now, they're now reimbursed, you know, Y and it's less. And, um, and so, and, and then you've got, you've, I, it also feels like there's a lot of control that's, that's exerted by the payers, uh, through, through the, uh, you know, on the practice. So you, we're, we're going to ding you on your reimbursement, put you in a different kind of tier for reimbursement. If, unless you follow X, Y, or Z, you know, best practices that we'd like to see, uh, again, not, not necessarily, because it it produces uh, better outcomes, um, and so it, it feels like. A, and I'll add to that that it seems like to be a primary care physician today, you almost have to have a small army of administrators, you know, to to haggle with payers and uh, and negotiate and, and and arbitrate, you know, these these uh, and and navigate, you know, these convoluted. Um, bureaucracies in order just to get paid that's all part of the cost of medicine uh, the additional staff required to bill uh, and then to rebill yeah. and then to appeal the rebill yeah. and then get paid it costs money to make money yeah. you need you need seven billers for every ten physicians that's crazy it, it never happened this way uh, you said I was in practice for 40 years that was 40 years was 15 years ago. It's been 55 years that, that I, when I got, first began to practice. And when I first started, there was none of this. Yeah. Patients paid at the door on the way out. Yeah. Imagine that. Nobody had to be billed. Yes, nobody had to be billed. Yeah. And emergency rooms were for emergencies, for life-threatening emergencies. Hmm. Now they're for people, mostly for families where there was – both the husband and wife are both working yeah. and have no time to, to take out to see their doctor. Yeah. So they go to a, an evening doctor or a nighttime doctor, either urgent care or emergency room. Right. It's just more, more convenient. Right. Yeah, and you're kind of, Most kind of my, waiting until you have some sort of incident, you know? Yes. Usually common colds or sprains or, or cuts. Uh, something can be handled just as easily in an office, but during the eight to five, nine to five hours. And those are not convenient hours any, any longer. Yeah. But mothers are working. Yeah. So I, I'm interested in, in diving a little deeper into kind of the way that you think we're going to get out of this. Um, Cause I, I've had this conversation a lot with a lot of doctors. I'm, I'm personally, I'm very, you know, my, my, if you ask me what I think about the healthcare system or what I think will happen to the healthcare system, 
Um, I'm tempted to quote, uh, I think it's H.L. Mencken, who's talking about public school system, he, and he said, uh, he said there's nothing uh, so bad about public, the public school system that it couldn't be solved by uh, burning all the schools and hanging all the teachers. <laughs> and, and I kind of feel that way about health care. It's like, well, if we could just get rid of all the uh, administrators and get rid of all the hospitals and, you know, and start over, it'd be great. Um, so I, I do tend to think it's, it's a mess, and, and I'd love to see it burn to the ground. And I'd love to see something else uh, replace it. Um, I tend to be inclined more towards this, the, the kind of free market approach. And I, I look at things like a direct primary care, um, and, uh, and things like, uh, well, the, the free market medical association is a, is a group of, uh, physicians who are starting cash based, you know, um, uh, no, you know, totally price transparent, um, practices like surgery centers, um, et cetera. And so I, I'm really fascinated by those and, and, and to see the growth of those things. And it's, it's one way to kind of get outside of this whole infrastructure, you know, this whole bureaucracy of, of payers and, and regulators and everything else. Um, but, but you've got kind of a different approach. Um, can, can you tell us, tell me a little bit more about how, how you think that uh, we, can, we can address all these problems? So I agree that we should totally tear the system down to the ground yeah. and and do and do a rebuild. Yeah, good. Uh, We're in agreement. We we we've been we've been trying for seventy or eighty years yeah. to fix the edges of it, yeah. but the core of it is rotting 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 away. Yeah. So, uh, it is it is in such bad shape yeah. that it needs a total over total overhaul. Yeah. My approach is is, is different because we need a single payer uh, to eliminate the, the complexity. Complexity adds a lot of cost to the healthcare system. Sure. Uh, uh, I don't know if you realize this, but the, but there are fifteen hundred different health insurers in the country, yeah. and they, and each one offers hundreds of of, of options, yeah. all of which are bewildering yeah. uh, and add complexity. Uh, uh, you know, ER doctors have. Could charge an ERC. It, 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 that's very simple and straightforward. But we're in primary practice, and, and patients are coming in. Let's just not, not my practice, because my practice was uh, ended up being, being exclusively uh, Medicaid. Uh, but other practices were actually where I worked for my last three years. I, 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 when my practice got sold, I went to work for three years. In a, in a more conventional main, mainstream practice, yeah. and that, then I saw the other side of the coin, yeah. which were patients coming in with a whole range of insurance plans, and uh, with a whole range of deductibles, a whole range of co-payments. Yeah. Nobody knew what 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 to, what to charge them. Uh, the, the charges went to their to their insurance company, who denied them. Love to deny, yeah. and we and there was an entire back office army of, of billers who just build and build and build and build. Yeah. Uh, it just added added cost. The, there was a study that was done uh, among doctors uh, measuring the number of, number of hours spent per week during dealing with their red tape. It ends up being about one ninth of the total work week. Wow. Uh, so a, too much time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's only because they had an army yeah. working for them. Yeah. Uh, but the, the amount of paperwork that's required yeah. just to deal with with this overwhelming complexity. So that's one one issue. Uh, 
for many, the biggest issue is a co-payment for medications. Mm-hmm. Prescription medications are outrageously expensive, and the free market will not control them. The free market allows them to get to get as high as they can be, because that's the goal. That's the goal. Leave leave the. Uh, uh, Leave the, the producer alone, let, and let let the law, rules of supply and demand set the price. It doesn't happen though with prescription medications. That when you're the only one, you're only one offering that medication. Yeah. You know, free, free market implies that there's no monopoly. Well, you know, free market doesn't want any interference, but that's which would be fine. But but it doesn't have monopolies. Monopolies negate the existence of free market. Right. And we have monopolies. All of our, those those prices are monopolistically controlled. Well, I'd say we so, have worse than we have worse than monopolies. Uh I, I think we have we have uh government backed, government enforced monopolies. I I feel like um the evils of uh of of our healthcare system are, are not the evils of capitalism, but they're they're the evils of crony capitalism of of, of a of a free of a of a not at all free market, but a, a you know, and 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 I would say um, healthcare is about the farthest thing in America that I could point to from a, a free market. You know, it's it's there, there's definitely pro- profit uh, motive motive, but it seems like the pro the the effort to gain those profits are not by providing a better service. It's it's by gaming the system. It's by getting patents that that get renewed and and extended. Forever, so you can keep, keep maintain your monopoly if you're a, a pharmaceutical company or a, or a device manufacturer, um, or it's yeah, it's it's getting some special treatment or status uh, through through regulations. Um, it seems that seems to be to be to me to be the biggest. Uh, it, I think we're saying the same thing though. I mean, the complexity is is kind of Leviathan esque. You know, the the situation that we have today. Um, is so complex and so um, corrupted, it, it seems, with with uh, with lobbyists and you know from corporations and and special favor. You, know, you get the revolving door of regulators who who you know are, are one day regulating you know uh, from the from the standpoint of the you know whether it's the C, the CDC or the or, or or one of the 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 uh, regulating agencies. And the next day, they're running a pharmaceutical company, you know, um, and and living under the regulations that they helped write, you know. So it does seem. I think we can agree that 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 it is. We are living in a situation that is so incredibly complex, and it's only those who really have the resources uh, uh, that that you have as a giant corporation to to really be able to game the system. Right, and, and it's getting more complex yeah. by the day. Yeah. Uh, it was it was it was very straightforward uh, 40 50 years ago yeah. you just paid the bill yeah. and the bill was payable yeah. it wasn't wasn't the uh, you know I'm taking the medication and I just received my copayment three thousand dollars that's crazy that's my, 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 my copayment well the example the example um, I, I've given I'm sure on the show a couple times so sorry listeners but but this will be new for you. I've got a, a friend who's who's got great insurance um, out in California, um, and had a child who needed an ear tube um, placed, and 
and he is uh, heading in to you know they 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 book this this procedure. It's an outpatient procedure. You know uh, they book this this procedure months in advance, and the day before they show up, they they get a call from the practice saying, "Hey, just to give you a heads up, you're going to need to bring a cash or check for your copay." Which, after your insurance, is going to be six thousand um, dollars, and uh, wow. for a fifteen-minute outpatient procedure, mind you, and and so I, I, to this friend, I went to you know the the uh, Oklahoma Surgery Center, you know, has a website, a picture of a body with a bunch of dots on it. You click on a dot for a body part, and you get a drop-down menu of every procedure they <laughs> offer and a price, you know, to the penny. And wow. and I said, hey, look, look, look at their website. It's fifteen hundred dollars for that exact same procedure. You could buy a first class ticket to Oklahoma, take your family to Six Flags over Texas, stay in the Ritz Carlton, and come home and get the procedure, and you'd still come out ahead than if you used your your insurance uh, and and went to this this provider. But it's like a, it's like this weird Stockholm syndrome almost, where where. Even when you have that kind of option, it's just like we've sort of been institutionalized to feel like, well, I just got to do what, just got to do what my insurance company and my my practice is telling me I'm supposed to do. And, right, it happened gradually. We yeah. we were slowly, slowly burned in the, uh, uh, by one degree at a time, yeah. until we've now come to accept this as being normal. Yeah, that's right. It's the it's the new abnormal. That's right. So, um, so, um, help, help me understand kind of, um, how, how universal healthcare system, how it can save, save taxpayers uh, money. Cause I think people think of, uh, of, of something like that becoming, you know, run like everything that government touches, which tends to be incredibly inflated. You know, I, I, I'm in Huntsville, Alabama, which is kind of government contractor uh, defense industry kind of one, you know, mecca. Um, and uh, and and I talk to these engineers all the time, and, and they talk about just how insane the the inflation is in in their sector. You know, they they can do the same work for a, a private company and, and make orders of magnitude less money because uh, because it's not the government paying the bill. So so yeah. Talk maybe talk a little bit about about that that aspect of universal health care and, and how it can actually save money and not become a, a you know um, expensive more expensive than what we've got. Uh, sure, the uh, universal health care only implies that everybody has health care insurance. Yeah. that nobody's nobody's left out. Okay. Uh, currently, we have thirty million uninsured, another forty million underinsured. Yeah. So universal means everybody has coverage. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean how. It doesn't mean who's paying for it. Okay. it that means everyone's covered. So that's that's universal health care. Uh, different countries do it different ways. Every country does it some way, except one country. Yeah. This this country. Yeah. We're the only ones without universal health care. Yeah. Uh, so the other what, what I was referring to was not universal health care because that that should that should be a given. Is single pay, single payer healthcare, because the single payer does so many things that are that are good, uh, and the single payer is most most likely going to be the government. I mean, nobody but the government has the has the funds yeah. to become a single payer, but the single payer uh, is able to negotiate 
drug prices with, with massive purchasing power, uh, able to really get the prices down to where our allies are paying, which is a, a fraction of what we're paying for prescription medications. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's one aspect of it. Uh, the, the amount of, there's been no need for, for this constant advertising and, and, and being hit over the head day and night with ads for Medicare Advantage. I can't turn my computer on without getting pop-ups for Medicare Advantage's that plans. Yeah. So there would be none of that. Right. And the, the Medicare Advantage plans have overheads uh, in the range of 50 to 17%. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of money going to not healthcare. Right. It's, it's going elsewhere. Right. Uh, it's coming from healthcare, but not going to healthcare. Uh, the Medicare overhead is around 2% when you average in A, which is 0.5, and B, which is about 3%. Mm-hmm. So Medicare operates at a very, very low overhead. Almost all the money goes to providing healthcare. So that's the, that's the second major way. Yeah. A huge reduction in overhead, and then there's nobody in the government who's looking for for a huge killing in, in healthcare. There are no major uh, families like like the Sackler family that are now richer than the Rockefellers. There's none of that stuff going on in the, in the government. There are inefficiencies as there are everywhere else, but there's no corporate greed. Yeah. So we we get get away from that, uh, but but. Uh, those are the major ways because because the uh, uh, I have other ways that I'd l- I would like to see happen. I'd like to see the government st- stop paying for procedures that are on the don't do list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know the uh, we generated a list of of, of uh, oh, seven hundred procedures that are that add no value yeah. uh, by the choos- choosing wisely group. Other countries adopted that list and have stopped paying for those things. Mm-hmm. We still pay for them. Yeah. <laughs> we, we say don't don't do them, but here's here's your money for, for doing them. Yeah. So, uh, so we we overdo things that we know are of no value and keep paying for them. Right. So we we do too much and we charge too much. Right. And a lot of what we do is uh, adds no value. Right. And by value, I mean improving the health of the people. Yeah. Well, I, I, I certainly agree with that. Um, there's, there's, um, you know, and, and, and the, the, as a consumer, you know, I mean, we're not really consumers. I mean, you know, we're, we're kind of the, we're, we're the patient, you know, um, but, but we're not really, um, in, you know, when I think of a consumer, I think of somebody who wants something, wants, you know, needs or wants something and goes to the store and, makes an informed decision about what it is they want and, and purchases it. And, and, and in healthcare, um, that's certainly not what's happening most of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, it feels like, uh, <clears throat> when I think about the patient and I think about the, the physician and I think about the, uh, insurance company and the pharmaceutical company. And, uh, I, I think it's like, uh, it's like three or three wolves and a sheep kind of arguing over what's for dinner. It's like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wonder who's going <laughs> to, I wonder who's going to, who's going to come out on the losing end of this thing. Um, so, yeah. Well, consumers generally know what they're buying and know the value of what they're buying. You go into a store and you want to buy a bar of soap. 
you know what you paid for it last time. You know what, kind of what it's worth, and uh, you know what to pay. That doesn't happen when you see a doctor. Yeah. There's this is something I've brought up on a number of episodes, but um, you know there there is this ancient idea of uh, of the professions um, of the three professions, and they're they're you know health and uh, religious and and legal, and and the idea is that these three professions profess some ultimate truth that um, that we don't want uh, we don't want you know. Uh, pastors or judges or, or physicians um, incentivized or motivated by by profit uh, that, that it becomes a um, it becomes a moral hazard and um, and so the idea was an honorarium you know that was the that was kind of the way that the ancient uh, you know ancient world dealt with with those issues you said hey we're these people aren't going to get a fee for service they're going to get a Honorarium, and we're essentially going to say these are these are people who are called to something, uh, you know, a higher calling, and we're going to hold them to a higher standard. But but we're also going to honor them, and we're going to provide for them a a, a, a you know a, a good living, so that they can do the job that, that that we need them to do, and to do it in a fair, honest way. Um, it is is some of um, I don't know if that has any parallels at all with kind of your thinking about. You know the future of, of healthcare um, in in more of this universal system, um, but it sounds to me like it's got some there's some some similarities to getting back to that kind of um, you know uh, I talk to a lot of physicians who say hey this is a business I've got to figure out how to how to run this thing profitably and and um, and that's just the way it is and and I wonder sometimes if that's how it has to be. Well, it does have to be. You you, you can't uh, you can't go broke. You, must, you, know, you pay your bills. You pay your staff. Pay your rent. You have to be able to pay for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is not the. But, but the way I ran my business, which was got to be pretty big after a while, uh, was not to consider the, the money at the end of the, the end of the road. My 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 approach was to uh, make the best decisions I could. Mm-hmm. Uh, always with the patient's best interest as the guiding principle, be as economic and frugal as I can without compromising on that. And then at the end of the, after all that, there was usually some money left over. And that was, that was, that was the profit. It was a very tiny margin, but I had a huge, I had a huge number. So 1% margin over 40,000 patients adds up. So that's how I got I, I didn't get by on, on Medicaid rates. I got by on, on Medicaid rates plus one percent times forty thousand. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, it, it it could be done, yeah. and uh, without without any compromises. Well, so you go ahead. Well, I was going to say that as as bad as things have gotten with with the the big corporations taking charge, they got to get worse mm. because because now private equity. Now sees an opportunity here, sure, and and they are buying up everything they can find. Yeah, uh, and private equity groups uh, are in it only for the profit. They make no pretense about this, sure. and they, and the goal is to make a killing, a quick killing, and then a few years later, don't turn it over to get rid of it. Right. So we're 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 now in in that phase of of healthcare's deterioration. Right. The private equity funds taking over. 
Yeah, and somebody somebody told me. Um, I, I feel like I, I heard or read this explanation once of why you know w- when you look at something like diabetes, right? And you and you look at how incredibly costly diabetes is on the healthcare system over the long haul, and you think. Why isn't more money being spent on prevention? Why, why aren't the insurance companies who are paying the bills over the long haul for these patients, why aren't they taking a long view? And the explanation that I, that I heard that I thought was compelling was these uh, these insurance companies are focused like, like most pri- publicly traded companies. Um, they're focused on their quarterly earnings reports, and uh, and they're also banking on the fact that people change jobs every couple of years and um, that that it's not going to be their problem, you know? And so, and so that, that was kind of the explanation that was given to me that I thought made a lot of sense. I've, I've wrestled with that question before. Is that, is that kind of how you think those kinds of decisions are made? A hundred percent. The, the the commercial insurance companies lose about 20% of their, of their uh, clients every year. Mm. Uh, and over a period of five years, they, they've turned over a whole new group. Yeah. So yeah. The, the idea is kick the can down the road. Yeah. Eventually, it ends yeah. up in the, in the lap of Medicare. Yeah. Let Medicare pay for it. Yeah. And that's yeah. what happens all of these chronic diseases. Yeah. Well, the, the idea of prevention and, and uh, uh, treating conditions, keeping them uh, uh, where they are, yeah. they only do that when they're, when they're forced to by the, by the state insurance agencies. Yeah. Otherwise... That's my clock. I'm sorry, sorry for that one. <laughs> yeah. So they, they that's a, that's an expense. Uh, pre- prevention prevention is, a, is an expense for them, uh, and it's a, it's a long term investment. They're in they're in this for the short term. Well, prevention, yeah, prevention is healthcare. Um, um, what they're in the business of seems like it's it's more sick care. You know, it's it's let's treat what we have to treat. You know, and. And everything else, let's let's leave for somebody else to deal with. Uh, kick that can down the road. Yes, and I think diabetes is a great example yeah. because uh, uh, it's so costly yeah. uh, and and so and so prevalent and getting more prevalent. Yeah. yeah. And and intensive lifestyle programs are so beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. When 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 applied, yeah. and just not being applied enough. Yeah. Well, I feel like this this uh, we've just barely scratched the surface, Dr. Simon, on 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 this huge topic and um I'm I'm thrilled to to have a copy of your book now. Thank you for sending that to me. I'm I'm looking forward to reading it in more detail than I have uh so far, but uh ripped off, over-tested, over-treated and overcharged the American Healthcare Mess. I I'd encourage people to check out the book even if you even if you don't think you're going to agree with Dr. Simon's conclusions, there there are um, there are hundreds of pages here of 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 really detailed accounts of how we got into this mess that we're in, why it is the way that it is, and I think um, I think it'll be pretty eye opening. For I don't think very many of us Americans have really thought critically about. The cost of overdiagnosis and overtreatment, or you know, um, you know, the, the, our, our healthcare system's approach to disease management, um, and uh, the role of you know big tech and big pharma in healthcare, and and you you go through all of this stuff in in a lot of detail, um, and and I think um, 
you know, we're not going to get solutions, I don't think, until people start to um, start to really feel and understand and, and see the problem and see the impact of the problem. And so I, I applaud you for the work you're doing uh, and, and would encourage you to keep keep it up. And uh, and and I appreciate your willingness to, to make time here to come on our show. Thank you, Larson. I appreciate your your, op- your chance, to, your opportunity to give, give your willingness to give me the opportunity yeah. to be heard and, and to hear my voice. Absolutely. Loved this episode of Branch Out by Sycamore? Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you.